Okay, um, you see from the handout that the uh, subject we'll start with tonight is instilling spiritual and moral values in children living in our secular society. Uh, I read an article today, in fact you'll get it in the uh, beacon tomorrow, Danny put it in, but he quotes Cal Thomas. Are you familiar with uh, the syndicated columnist? I didn't realize this, but Cal Thomas is a member of the Church of Christ. And I had been reading his articles for years and knew he was a very conservative and moral individual, but I didn't know that. But anyway, what he pointed out is that uh, what is happening uh, to the church along with our society and things like, for example, divorce is happening just as much among people who claim to be Christians as those who don't. That surprised me. I thought there at least would be some difference. And the same with other moral sins, that they're taking place just as much among people who are professing Christians as they are people, people in the world. And so obviously there's very little contrast in looking at society as a whole, in, in the church as a whole, because he's looking at church in the large sense, uh, and in the secular society. The uh, word secular simply means non-religious. That's all. So when we say that, that our society is secular and, and becoming increasingly so, what we're really saying is that religion is becoming less and less and less a part of our society, that it is, uh, is being put out of the schools and, and has been in, in various forms. Uh, it's being taken out of the textbooks. Uh, the media uh, is anti-religious. In fact, what uh, Thomas pointed out in his article, that we have actually moved from a post-Christian age uh, in the United States to an anti-Christian. It's not a matter of uh, people just not being religious, that there is really aggressive anti-religious thinking among a lot of people that are writing and making plays and movies and and making the laws and, and things of this nature. And so we've become more and more secular. Now, the article here I gave you that, that I read from last week, and I thought it was good, and it comes from the book, How to Reach Secular People. By the way, this is an ex excellent book. I'm about two-thirds through it and have gleaned the whole thing, but I borrowed it from Danny. He read it and thought I would enjoy it. And it's very good. In fact, maybe the best I've read on that particular subject. But look at the uh, page here. It's uh, <clears throat> how the West was lost and how, on, in the book, how, how to Reach Secular People. And notice some of the things that he mentions here. Uh, I'm starting down in the second paragraph, about one sentence down. You'll see a little mark in the left page. It's measured by the simple indicator of church attendance. Nations that were once substantially Christian are now largely lost to the Christian movement. The percentage of people even attending church on an average Sunday has declined to 6% in West Virginia, West Germany, and Italy. Keep in mind, when you read that about Italy, about 99% of them are professing Catholics, but yet 6% of the population actually go to church. Between 1% and 3% in Scandinavia to 12% in Great Britain and Canada, the percentage of people attending church on an average Sunday is less than half what it was 40 years ago. In Australia, less than half of what it was 25 years ago. 
And then he goes ahead and talks about all over the Western world, including the United States, that the church has a fraction of what it used to have that is uh, going to, on a regular basis. Now, what he points out about the United States, that although our numbers are above Western Europe, that it's somewhat deceptive. And he points out the, the way the church is held on its numbers, to its numbers, is by compromising. And that the church, in many ways, uh, has become uh, involved in entertainment, it's become involved in the things of the world, and it's been willing to make all kinds of compromises and to stop speaking on certain things in order to attract people. And so what you have is sort of a mixture. Uh, and, and this, by the way, is shown, although he doesn't get into it on the page I copy, this is shown by the statistics of what's happened. On the one hand, uh, our church attendance uh, seems to be better than Western Europe. But when you look at us from a, a moral standpoint, uh, we're right there with them. And when we look at our country from a moral standpoint, uh, we've come a long ways from where we were a generation ago. And so that the numbers are really somewhat misleading so far as our attendance and, and things like that. And in fact, uh, you know, there's the, the belief among some uh, of what would happen uh, if uh, real strong morality were proclaimed again. Uh, what some believe is that, uh, and looking at it from a Christian standpoint, the church may need to lose before it grows. Uh, that one of the problems in our uh, being influential in our secular world is that uh, we have so much of the world in us that we're really not alike you know, in, in the society in which we live. And again, that's looking not at any one congregation or even one group. That's looking at uh, Christianity at large. Okay, notice uh, the other two handouts. Uh, just some statements there from uh, uh, Arthur Keith, an evolutionist, and T.H. Huxley, and the man here, T.L. Moore from L.T. Moore from University of Cincinnati. And to point out that they have this real strong uh, belief in advocating the theory of organic evolution. And also the recognition that you cannot consistently believe organic evolution and also believe the Bible. Now, I point this out simply because this has a bearing on the secularization of, of our society. On the one hand, the Bible and religion has been put out of the textbooks. But on the other hand, organic evolution and the secularization uh, of so much of our institutions has, has been incorporated uh, in, in the textbook. And so it pushes the secular, it pushes organic evolution and teaches it as if it were a fact, while at the same time it, it simply doesn't have the other side. All right, the other handout, starting with uh, Dr. Henry Morris, simply points out that it is uh, such now that young people going to college, and especially in the scientific realm, are led to believe that, you know, that this is what intelligent people believe. This is what the educated people believe. And so the end result is we have people by the score that are buying into this, not because it's been proven to them anyway, in any way, but simply because it seems to be the intellectual thing to believe in. The, the Bible is old-fashioned. It's uh, not with the times. It's not, not, not the latest. Surely we can improve on that. 
Well, can't you see in your own thinking that if the theory of evolution is accepted, then obviously how can you have a book that was completed 2,000 years ago that has a higher system of morality than what psychiatrists and psychologists uh, and educators can come up with today? That obviously if we've learned something in, in 2,000 years. So with the idea of organic evolution on a physical sense, also comes the idea that spiritually and morally and all these other ways that we're evolving there also. And that's why you find these people uh, making statements concerning, for example, uh, uh, homosexuality. That uh, we have this feeling that we do because of all these thoughts that have been injected into our mind from biblical times. But the reason homosexuality, this is not off the top of my head, it's from their sources, the reason homosexuality was thought of as so bad is because there weren't a lot of people and they really needed to populate the earth. And so therefore they needed to encourage reproduction and, and discourage homosexuality. Now, with population being a real problem, homosexuality is, is looking like a very viable alternative because it does not increase the population and so therefore ought to be looked at as an alternative lifestyle that could be very viable for some people. But again the rightness of this is from the standpoint that surely the last word is not in a book completed 2,000 years ago. And no matter what you think about Paul, he was subject to the culture and the traditions and the thinking of that time. And the Jews believed it was bad, so so did Paul. But we've, we've come a long way since then. So the entire thinking of organic evolution is one that in the long run will provoke a rejection of the Bible and the secularization of the society. And that's just what has happened. Uh, if you go back and study the history of Germany, you find out that somebody like Hitler just didn't walk in and take over that the minds of the German people had been prepared for many years uh, with the thinking of philosophers like Ray Nischke, uh, with people like Sigmund Freud, uh, with Charles Darwin, and with the German theologians who had long before that kicked God uh, out of the theological seminaries in Germany. In fact, the, the German theologians became the hotbed of a lot of unbelief that would eventually come to this country. So before Hitler came to power, Germany had long ago uh, kicked God out, and, and Christianity had, uh, in a mental sense, and it was something that they gave assent to, uh, it was something that was just there, there was no real respect for the church or, or anything of that nature. Well, what has happened in our own society is that we have tended more and more and more to kick God out of the picture, and to kick the Bible out, and we haven't left a void that with God going out in the Bible, then something's had to replace it. Well, if you kick God out, what is the highest order that you can see on this earth? Man. And that's what we mean by humanism. Humanism simply means the recognition. And so now man has evolved to the point that he recognizes that, that God was okay for people to use to explain things they couldn't understand. 
Uh, they couldn't understand the storms, and so they created God. They couldn't understand disease and things of this nature. And they, they thought that God had to hold the earth up and, and keep the moon balanced and everything like that. And now we know how that the laws of nature take care of all of this. This is all natural phenomenon. And therefore, since we know this, there is no need to have God to explain those things because not only do we know all this now, but the things that we don't know, it's only a matter of time before we do know them. And that's, that's the thinking of humanism. And so God is being replaced by humans who really then have elevated themselves as God. And, and it's not just some wild thinking. That is what's taking place in our society. And the influence of it can be shown in many ways. We, and, it's, and again, where I'm concerned is not just in the world when we get to dealing with our children, but we have to see what's happening to us as adults. We regularly uh, complain about politicians who, on the one hand, go to church and carry their Bible, and then on the other hand, they endorse homosexuality and all kinds of immoral conduct. And we say, well, they're, they're hypocrites or, and, or they're willful liars. But they may not necessarily be that bad knowingly. Uh, they may just be the product uh, of, a, of a secular society, and they have bought in. Uh, to humanism, and, and somehow they're, they're going through a balancing act in their own mind of how can I hold on to this, and yet by the same token, give in to what I know over here. And so we regularly see people who are still going to church on the one hand, and they're carrying their Bible, but they obviously, so far as their real beliefs are concerned, don't believe it. They really have bought into something else, and so it's somewhat deceiving. Well, what you see in the political realm He's just, uh, whoever it is, uh, he's, he or she just may be there openly, but multiply them by the thousands in the church. As we got thousands and thousands just like them who carry their Bible and go to church. But in reality, their conduct during the week is influenced by uh, their thoughts along the other line, and that's what they've been taught in college, and that's the environment they lived in, and, and that governs their conduct more than anything else. Now, as an example of just how far that we have come, some of this I read when we did the thing on evidences, and so I'll just allude to it, but here is a book on uh, George Washington, and here are a few quotes uh, when George Washington made his first inaugural address. It would be peculiarly improper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications to the Almighty Being, who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aids can supply every human defect. We ought to be no less persuaded that the propositions, propitious smiles of heaven, can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself ordained. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand that conducts affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Now, here's a, a statement by the man that's our first president. He, he doesn't just believe in God. He believes in God's providential care. He also believes that the morality found in the Bible is the highest order of morality in the world and that our success uh, lies in adhering to those moral principles. It was George Washington who set aside a day for Thanksgiving, and this is his Thanksgiving Day proclamation in 1789. 
I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November, next to be devoted to the people of these states to the service of the glorious being who is the beneficent author of all good, that was, that is, or that ever will be, that we may then unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country, previous to their becoming a nation, and also that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions. Can you imagine something like that today? Here is the president setting aside a day not to honor Martin Luther King or some other person, whoever they may be, but he sets aside today that the whole nation might pause and pay homage to the glory of God and recognize that everything that we have is his gift. And it went over. It's not a matter of just this one man proclaimed it. It would not have went over had not the vast majority of the people agreed with it. There just simply was no opposition when he made it. Uh, you think of... To me. Oh, okay. Them or not. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Off the wall. <laughs> Thanks. I'm used to speaking to a lot of them. Thank you. Okay. I thought you may be doing it for the tape. But... No. No, I was just. Uh... Now we think of Christopher Columbus as setting uh, out for the purpose of just concerned about wealth, a short route to the east. Uh, Christopher Columbus' greatest discovery was not the New World. As a young boy, Columbus trusted Christ as his Savior and discovered the ways of God. This little-known fact was the reason for his adventurous life. Columbus felt God wanted him to explore the world and find new land and people so that Christ could be proclaimed. Finding boats and money to make the trip turned into a grueling experience in discouragement. Kings and queens promised and failed him, but Columbus was determined he had promised God. You're not going to read that in too many of the textbooks. And what he points out, by the way, in each of these books, the material comes from the letters and the documents of the people themselves. And most of the time, of course, Columbus is portrayed uh, with any reason other than this as doing the things that he did. Uh, Abigail Davis, the wife of uh, Abigail Adams, the wife of John Adams, on her husband's election to the presidency, and now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant ruler over the people, given to him an understanding heart that he may know how to go out and come in before this great people, that he may discern between good and bad. On politics, that cannot be politically right, which is morally wrong. And then, I am no friend of bigotry, yet I think the freedom of inquiry and the general tolerance of religious sentiments have been like all other good things perverted, and under their shelter, deism and even atheism have found refuge. She sure didn't believe that she feel compelled to give, to give equal rights to the 4% minority of the population that was atheist. And they're thinking, on slavery, of this I am certain, that its slavery is not founded upon the generous and Christian principle of doing to others what we would have others do unto us. And living the Christian life, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but the God of Israel, 
is he that giveth strength and power to his people. Well, I won't go anymore, but suffice to say that I've got Abraham Lincoln. You can read speech after speech after speech of Abraham Lincoln where he quoted and quoted and, and literally it becomes obvious to you that he had a mind that was filled with belief in God, belief in the Bible, and belief very strongly in the, in the providence of God. And the same, too with, same true with uh, Isaac Newton and Johannes Kepler, that real strong statements about God. Well, those books could be multiplied. When I got them in Jubilee, that's all I thought I could afford at the time with the others I was getting. But you could multiply them uh, with those early people. Now, all I'm saying with all of this, in reading those quotes and realizing that you can multiply them through presidents and and through congressmen and senators back through the history, it helps us to realize just how far that we have come. In fact, if our age group doesn't do something about what's going on, I don't know who will, because the young people weren't around uh, before, and they really don't know anything different than what they have. They don't realize how secular that our society has become. Now, the question that we're going to look at is, we know it's here, and we know that we've become a secular society, and the question is, uh, we're bringing up our children and our grandchildren. Before we can do anything out there, how do we go about instilling religious and spiritual beliefs in all of our children and all the kids that are in Bible class and our own children and our own grandchildren and whenever we deal with kids in VBS or any other time, are there things that we can do that, that can instill uh, religious belief and spiritual values? And keep in mind, those who profess Christianity, as secular and as worldly as we may be as a body of people, we still make up the biggest percent of the population of this country. I'm saying that there, there is still room uh, for movement in those minds. Now, a few stats. Have we all heard statements that the schools are what's destroying our children? The public schools, have you heard a lot of negative things about the public school system and, and all of the bad things? I heard it all the time I was in, and you don't get as much in a little community like this as you, as you get in the city. But parents regularly blame the public schools. Sit down with a pencil and paper. I started to hand this out and I forgot to copy this. I sat down and figured it out because I'd lost my copy. And figure out the total amount of hours that a child has from 0 to 18. And then figure out the total amount of hours that he spends in school. If he goes every single school day, 180 days a year, 7 hours a day, never misses a single solitary day. And what you'll find is your child is under the direct control of the school for about 10% of the time. Now, if you want to forget about the sleeping hours, let's just do away and say, well, yeah, but what about the waking hours? 33% of the time is sleeping if you sleep eight hours a day. So what we still wind up with is this child, is the parent has the child under their control about 57% of the time, under their direct control. 33% of the time he's sleeping, 10% he's at school. So think of all the hours, the parent has a child under their direct control when he's awake, 57% of the time. 33% of the time he's sleeping, 10% he's at school. And keep in mind, 
School's not a wipeout, and it's not fair to leave that impression because, number one, a certain number of teachers along the way are Christians. A certain number of the principals are Christians. And a certain percentage of the young people there also have that belief. So you just can't look at that 10% as a wipeout. But I say that simply to say this. It's, if you look at the figures, it's a cop-out for a parent to look at a child who is not moral or who is not spiritual and then blame the school system and say, I just can't do anything with him or they've got such and such, when in reality, they've got him at home 90% of the time and only 10% is in the school. And even then, some of that is under the tutelage of Christian teachers and Christian principals and with other people that are, that are Christian also. Okay, any, any comment? before we on any observation or comment so far. None? Okay, look at your outline. And next week, we're going to look at how it can be done. And this week, we just want to look at the fact that uh, it can be done. And that it really, there's, uh, there's no excuse that, that we can literally bring up children who are spiritual and who have very high morals, even though the society itself seems to be contrary to this. Now, I put the verses down, but we'll, uh, with the group we got here tonight, had we had some others here that didn't have the background that you've got, uh, we would have taken the time to turn over here and read, you know, the passages involved. But there's there's no need for the group that's here tonight. Okay, and uh, look at the first one with Moses. The Israelites are in Egypt. When Moses is born, there's a Pharaoh on the scene who no longer knows Joseph, who no longer knows the, the God of Joseph. And there's the persecution that takes place. The people are in bondage. Uh, and we know the story and how Moses winds up in the house of Pharaoh. All right. His mother is given the opportunity to nurse him and to care for him. Uh, unbeknownst to uh, Pharaoh's daughter that this, is, uh, that this is his mother. Okay, later as uh, we look at Moses, he uh, goes out at about 40 years of age and takes his stand for the Israelites and actually kills an Egyptian. And the result of that is he has to flee for his life. Well, when Hebrews, when the Hebrew writer comments on that in Hebrews 11, 23 through 27, he makes a statement that Moses by faith did this and that he actually made a decision. And he made the decision to reject what he could have had in, in Egypt under Pharaoh. And so Moses had a very high position waiting on him. He had a very easy life for that day. Uh, he could have been renowned. And yet he made a decision to take his stand with a group of people that were slaves simply because he believed that their God was the true God. And of course, as we look at the life of Moses, uh, we know that you don't form your personality the way Moses be became at 40 years of age that that personality was formed from you. And when God came to Moses at the burning bush and he identified himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses' father, 
The only way that could have any meaning is if Moses already knew the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their walk with God and knew about his own father and his walk with God. And remember, look at the family. You've got Moses, who's his brother? Aaron, sister, Miriam. That's pretty good for one family brought up in Egyptian bondage with all of that idolatry around them. And, and keep in mind, the idolatry was uh, sheer paganism in, in worship. Uh, uh, remember what happened when they made the golden calf after they had come out of Egypt? Well, they didn't invent that idea. They, they got the idea in Egypt. And the way they worshiped was through fornication. Uh, it was fertility rites. And so here are people brought up in all of that. And yet we obviously have a mother and father who have done an absolute outstanding job of training their children in real high moral and spiritual values. And they have this strong belief in God to the extent that they're willing to put everything on the line uh, as a result of that. And so again, Moses at least stands as an example that it can be done. Uh, the fact that his mother, in fact, we talk about Moses, but if it had not been for the mother of Moses, there would have been no Moses. And I'm talking about in a spiritual sense. Uh, there would have been no Moses as we know him if it had not been for that kind of mother. Okay, look at uh, Timothy. Now again, Picture in your mind the Roman world at that time. Oh, you want to give the references for the type in Exodus? Okay, Exodus 2, 1 through 15, Hebrews 11, 23 through 27, and Exodus 3, 1 through 6. Okay, now Timothy, keep in mind the Roman world at this time. It's not under the influence of Christianity. There's no democracy. You have sheer paganism and idolatry. And all we have to know, do to find out about the world at that time is run to Romans, the first chapter, 18 through 31. And we find that Paul identifies them as a people that have turned their back on God. And as a result of turning their back on God, he said they've become so perverted in their thinking that men lust after men and women lust after women and they do indecent things in their own bodies. And then he goes ahead to describe some of the sins that were prevalent in that day. Well, that was the Roman Empire. And that's the world that Timothy is brought up in. Well, not only that, we learn in Acts 16, 1 through 3, that Timothy had a Greek father. So his father was not a Jew, and he had not been circumcised. So the effect in Timothy's life was from two people that's mentioned to us. And that is a mother and a grandmother. And so with a Greek daddy, not a Jew, and in a Roman world, Timothy became a person that was right for the gospel, that was a very spiritual individual that had immediately put his trust in Christ when he had it presented to him. And Paul attributes that to the fact that his mother first had that faith and his grandmother had it before her and had been taught to Timothy. And then in 2 Timothy 3.15, he said that from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures that's able to lead you on to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so you look at Timothy in a pagan world with a Greek dad, but yet with a mother and a grandmother who were well studied in the Scriptures. He was taught that from childhood. They set a certain example before him. And the reason Timothy is really interesting to me in another sense 
is Paul didn't just pass out compliments easy. Uh, the only church he ever complimented, by the way, was the, uh, the Philippians. That was the only one that he had. He was all after the churches. Uh, and remember the split he had with Barnabas about Mark. Uh, Mark didn't do any bad thing. He just didn't have the zeal that Paul thought he should have. And, and Paul wouldn't want to travel with him anymore. He didn't. He, he gave it 100% all, all of the time himself. And he expected everybody else to. That was Paul's personality. <coughs> Timothy was very highly complimented by Paul. And then when he would even write to the churches and send Timothy, he said, I don't have another man like Timothy who's concerned about the interest of others. And so this personality of being willing to be concerned about others over and above himself. But again, as Moses, he stands as, as a witness that adults can train their children to be very spiritual and very moral even though they live in a pagan society and have wrong things going on all around them. Okay, now, the next one is uh, some devout Jews that you read about in Acts 2 and 5. There on Pentecost, it said there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven. 3,000 of them would be baptized that day. These people would form the nucleus of the church. Keep in mind, when the Gentiles came in, they were moral reprobates. Read about the church at Corinth. They had a long way to go. The real backbone and foundation of the church were, were the Jews. All right, Romans 1, 18 through 31 again, look, gives us a look at the Roman world at that time. So here are Jews living in a pagan Roman world. Okay, most of their own country has been defeated and carried into captivity and scattered, the ten tribes. And they're living under a Roman government in that pagan world, and yet Jews by the thousands were devout and believed very strongly in God. And I think that's something to keep in mind. Uh, so far as some of the, the things, the excuses that we make for ourselves today as a, as a church, that uh, there were thousands upon thousands of Jews in the Roman world that lived in a situation, we often say that we're as bad as Rome, but really we're not. Uh, if anybody thinks we're as bad as Rome, uh, if they think Bill Clinton, for example, is bad morally, go read about Nero or any single solitary Roman emperor you want to, and Bill Clinton is an angel. The man is an absolute angel compared to any emperor you want to compare him to. And read about their senate and their leaders and people like Pilate and Herod and our Congress at this point is angels compared to those people. I mean, I, nobody who have we ever had that would dream up uh, putting people on stakes and burning them and uh, putting animal skins on people and throwing them in the arena and turning animals loose on them. Uh, Fifteen of the last 16 emperors were either homosexual or bisexual. And then Nero was so perverted, it was un unbelievable. He had a 14-year reign. Uh, in, in Rome. So when we look at that world, it was that bad. And yet there were thousands and thousands of Jews that managed to maintain a very high level of spirituality and were very devout and very moral. So obviously it, it's possible. Okay, now Daniel is the last one I've got. Think of Daniel now. We know, we know about his spirituality, but think of the conditions that he was spiritual under. Number one, 
Israel has already been defeated by Assyria and carried into captivity because they're idolatry and their ungodliness and their unbelief. Okay? And that's over a century before Daniel comes on the scene. Judah has become so bad and so infested with idolatry that God uses Babylon to defeat them. Jer to show you how bad those people were, Jeremiah preached from 627 all the way down to 586, 41 years, and then we lose track of him. He didn't convert anybody. He, he got so disgusted, he got so discouraged that he would, one time he swore, swore off preaching, decided he was going to quit. And then he said he, when he saw what was going on, the word would just burn like fire within him, and he had to get out and go again. They dipped him in the mud, they beat him up, they did every unpleasant thing they could. I'm saying that, that Judah was ungodly, and they were in idolatry. Somehow or another, Daniel brought up, there was some godly parent that's not mentioned. Because Daniel is a young man, about 17 years of age, and he's being carted off to Babylon. He's in the custody of those pagan captors, they're the strongest force on the, on the earth. And he's already set his mind and said, I will not defile myself and that I will keep the law of Moses. And, and then when we take Daniel on into Babylon, we find this real, strong, spiritual, moral giant. And yet he was brought up in that environment. The same with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all of them were brought up in that ungodly world and yet remained spiritual themselves. Now, another one I could have added here. In the Old Testament, Noah, uh, the entire world's ungodly. But yet Noah was righteous before God. And he brought his children up that way. Lot, the entire city was corrupt. But Peter said that Lot was vexed daily because of the unrighteousness and the ungodliness there. He wasn't a good example so far as his children, but for maintaining his own belief, he was. All right, suffice it to say, all we're saying with all of this is that I don't care how bad the world is or how secular our society is, Paul made the statement that we can see demonstrated over and over that God will not allow us to be tempted above which we're able to handle and all the temptations that come our way are those that are common to mankind. And if we just sit back with the attitude that we can only expect our children to be secular uh, and not to be moral, and we've got to expect certain things and all, and man, it's happening. Again, no name. I don't even want to get into that stuff. But Barbara and I, a devout family from where we come from, not only devout, but uh, one of the more conservative members of the congregation. And their daughter has never known a day all the way up through high school, but that she was in church every single solitary time and brought up in a very strict way. Never wore shorts, never wore even pants and things like that. I mean, the what you would call overly strict. Right now, she's, she's a Tennessee Tech, living with some guy she's not married to. And she comes home, uh, and she still comes to church occasionally and all, but, but uh, that's her background, and that's what she's doing. But the problem with her and with others doing it is that there is this attitude that that's all we can expect today. 
because after all, everybody's doing it. The society is secular, it's pagan, and I'm seeing children are led to believe that we even expect this, and I, when the reality is, there's absolutely no reason for us not to believe that our children can be very spiritual and very moral and that they cannot enter marriage and be pure at the time they enter it. Uh, that, that, the nine is the phrase. Right. Phrase uh, the phrase that's used over and over on any of the shows or whatnot is it's the 90s and, and everybody needs to grow up. And I'm, what I'm saying is that I wonder if part of the problem is not, and we'll, we're going to pause and get, get into it next week, is the expectations that with our children. I think that's going to be one of the things that's very high. One thing that any school teacher knows is that uh, the children are, are going to come up to your expectations. If you don't expect much, you're not going to get much. That you have to have high expectations. And the same in the church. I think that even the, the expectations that we have have a whole lot to do with what people are going to come up to. But suffice it to say that these people stand as witness that no matter how secular the society is, children can be brought up and be very spiritual and very moral. And next week we'll take it from there and discuss the things that can actually be done by parents in order to turn out children who are very spiritual and very moral.